With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom, reach new audiences, and bring important information to the public free of charge. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to tntradio.live. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Breaking news. Urgent. Alert. You're not going to believe this story. Climate Depot headline, my website, TNT exclusive. Just stop breathing. Peer-reviewed study says human breathing contributes to global warming. Published in a peer-reviewed journal, PLOS One. I'm doing my part, restricting my breathing. We know we've already been through this with COVID. Mask up, muzzle yourself, save grandma. Well, I'm saving the future generations from my breath so that I don't cause global warming. Ah, this is insane. Actual peer-reviewed study. This is breaking news. I did mention it on yesterday's show briefly. I'm actually got on the Drudge Report. First time in years I've been on the DrudgeReport.com with a link, or at least a year or year and a half or so, has this story up. And this is incredible. A peer-reviewed study published this past week in the public library science journal PLOS investigated greenhouse gas emissions of methane and nitrous oxide and human breath, which allegedly, quote, contribute to global warming, unquote. That's in the study. And just to be clear, The study is titled Measurements of Methane and Nitrous Oxide in Human Breath. And it goes on to say, exhaled breath can contain elevated concentrations of methane, nitrous oxide, both of which contribute to global warming. These emissions are not well understood and are rarely qualified or quantified in global greenhouse gas emissions. Do you understand the significance of this study? In 2007, Massachusetts versus EPA, the Supreme Court ruled that carbon dioxide was a pollutant under the Clean Air Act and could be regulated as such by the Environmental Protection Agency in the United States. Yes, that's correct. For the first time in in U.S. history in 2007, with the blessing of the Supreme Court, the EPA could regulate our breath as a pollutant under the Clean Air Act. That's because of carbon dioxide. Point two, we then moved to March of 2020 when Anthony Fauci, after years of saying masks don't work and the Washington Post admitting masks don't work and the New England Journal of Medicine saying masks don't work. And I presented dozens of studies saying masks don't work. Suddenly in the spring of 2020, everyone said, wear masks. You got to prevent a pandemic. You got to save grandma. They started restricting our breathing, muzzling kids, muzzling people, muzzling everyone. People were wearing them alone in their cars. They were wearing them out on their bicycles, out in the woods. It was Bonkerville, but they were restricting our breathing. They were restricting the free flow of oxygen in our mouth, our mouth and our breath. 2007 was weaponized by the U.S. Supreme Court and the EPA for being essentially a pollutant. 2020, our breath once again became a deadly uh, pathogen in the form of a COVID virus that allegedly was going to kill everyone. So we had to muzzle ourselves. And now, ladies and gentlemen, in December 2023, peer-reviewed science, which you can't argue with. Are you an expert? Are you a climatologist? How dare you challenge the validity of this study? They're now going after, we inhale oxygen as humans, we exhale carbon dioxide, but they're actually going after the methane and nitrous oxide, the other greenhouse gases, in our breath. What does this mean? 
It means they believe that human breath is contributing to global warming. In other words, you are the carbon they want to reduce. It's that simple. I've been doing this a long time. On a daily basis, climate has been my bread and butter since 2006. Prior to that, I was an environmental investigative reporter going back another 15 years. But in terms of just climate, all the time, 2006 with the U.S. Senate Environment and Public Works Committee starting and then going to Climate Depot and all these UN summits, I don't know that I've ever seen anything this consequential and wacky. Because what they're basically saying is more people on the earth are going to be more contributing to global warming. Ergo, we need to reduce population. As I said, you are the carbon they want to reduce. And this is incredible because if you look at the whole history of breathing and of human and breath and the restrictions on us, this goes back to what Paul Ehrlich was originally arguing for. Remember in 1969, Paul Ehrlich talked about forced sterilization agents, hidden sterilization agents in our drinking water so we couldn't reproduce. Of course, now you have a COVID vaccine, which is affecting men's fertility count and also women's uh, monthly cycles, which creates another fertility problem. They've gone high tech with what they're trying to do in terms of reducing human population. UN summits, German climate advisor, Hans Schulenhuber, have also the carrying capacity of the earth. There's only 1 billion people, more than that. And you know we just can't handle it. Our breath is too great for it. I, I don't know what to say. I mean, this is so over the top, nuts. The fact they're also going after methane. First of all, methane is what they're using to justify going after meat eating. We can't have animal agriculture. The methane is destroying the planet. Of course, methane has been called the irrelevant greenhouse gas, but they're going after methane and they're going after nitrous oxide. Well, Scientific American a few months ago had a huge feature article about how us cons humans consuming meat was creating from nitrogen and it had a lot of nitrogen-based fertilizer and runoff. We were then creating nitrous oxide in our urine and our urine was contributing to global warming, not making that up. So according to the scientific literature, which you're not qualified to challenge, we are literally causing a catastrophe with our breath, and with our pee. I have not seen anything about fecal matter yet, uh, you know, and so that's something I'd have to look a little deeper into. I, I don't know. I haven't dug around into that, uh, but I'm sure that's not very far from talking about effluence uh, from humans, uh, human, you know, refuse. Uh, so this is just, this is the kind of stuff that passes for, for man-made global warming science. And this story is going huge right now. Uh, it's been covered with some media. I love this headline, humans are fueling global warming by just breathing, study claims. I do have some reaction. I have my, it's my headline article at Climate Depot. Uh, Charles Rotter of What's Up With That? The Absurdity of Measuring Breath for Climate Change. Uh, and he goes, the methodology employed in the study is questionable. They collected 328 breath samples from 104 volunteers and it hardly constituted a representative sample of the population. The fact these emissions are stated to contribute a mere 0.05% to 0.1% of the UK's total uh, methane and nitrogen emissions respectively are well below the margin of error in the national inventory. So they're basically saying the study doesn't even support its own claim, but it doesn't really matter. What they're doing is they're shooting a narrative out there they're pro propelling a narrative that says humans are bad for the environment, that human breathing is bad because it contains methane and nitrous oxide. And we already know Scientific American says our urine contains 
uh, too much nitrous oxide. So our, our headline actually in the Scientific American was human pee is a pollution problem and, you know, meaning climate pollution and, and otherwise farm runoff and other things. And of course you have the history of masking with, uh, with COVID as well. So your breath is a poison. Your breath is dangerous. Your breath needs to be muzzled. Human beings need to have their faces muzzled. That's really the message here. Continuing on, statistician Matt Briggs has a very funny reaction. And he, he, he studies this kind of stuff. He studies the corrupted science probably for a living at this point. The first question that came to my mind when I read the breathtaking research was, how could people be this stupid? This is Matt, uh, Dr. Matt Briggs, who's been a guest on my TNT show here. It has been known for quite a while that man exhales CO2. The amount were also on the books. Ask any doctor who graduated before the woke struck medical schools. You can't stop people from breathing. Oh, contraire, you can stop people from breathing. And we've seen that throughout human history. Uh, corrupt governments, power-hungry politicians, and people beholden to ideologies have stopped millions from breathing. And I'm not talking about, you know, they're still alive. It's, it's a euphemism for killing them. Matt Briggs goes on, the statistician. Could it be, could it really be that these academic experts want to reduce the surplus population to cut down breathing and save us from the ravages of global warming, now called climate change? And of course, the answer to that is obvious. Uh, and so now new scientists say breathing is bad for the environment. Gases we exhale contribute to, to the greenhouse gas emissions. So this is where we are now. It's funny because we went from just say no to oil. We all know that those are the people spraying, you know, buildings and defacing paintings and blocking traffic and all their stunts to now just stop breathing. So just say no to oil morphs to just stop breathing. It's actually just stop oil, just stop breathing. So there's your there's your big update for the day. All right, I don't want to spend too, that was my breaking news segment. So, aside from that, I wanted to mention a couple of things. The UN COP28 summit. I, I I mentioned this briefly yesterday, but I have the video I wanted to show you again today. It'll be clip one. I celebrated this uh, this this defeat of this UN climate summit. Again, the real power happened before with the World Health Organization now going to trying to roll in climate change as a public health threat, so they don't need no stinking meetings or democracy. But the the TNT radio used my clip, which went viral on Twitter. I then added a photo. I then posted it at Climate Depot. It has been going viral. And then here's the kicker, Fox News, Fox Business News. I did a similar thing where I had a cigar on Fox Business News, celebratory cigar. They did a special video of just me celebrating and posted it on YouTube of all places. Uh, so we have the two things, we celebrating with the party hat and all that. And this is important to get people out there to know that failure of a UN climate summit is good for humanity. Let's play clip one. This is what all the hullabaloo is about. Breaking news in the world of the United Nations Climate Summit. Breaking news for the world. It has now been declared WAP 28 instead of COP 28. The annual COP pantomime, and this is being declared by the Net Zero Watch in the UK. I have the information. And in addition to that, the COP president has now come out, uh, Sultan Al-Jabbar, and says they will keep investing in oil against the spirit of the agreement. So, you know my motto, failure of a UN climate summit is good news for humanity. So, time to celebrate. Woo! This is it. This is what we've been waiting for. I even got a bottle of bubbly ready to go. We have to celebrate little moments like this.
right, enough silliness. In all seriousness here, the COP president, uh, uh, Sultan Al-Jabbar, says they will continue to meet the demands of the United Arab Emirates and other OPEC nations with fossil fuels. Now, this is, goes against what John Kerry was pushing earlier this week, the global shaming and that the community and nations must come together uh, in order to save the planet. At this annual, it's being called an annual COP pantomime by the uh, Net Zero Watch in London. Uh, and, and they have a whole scenario of how this failed. Essentially, this went into the final negotiations. Now, keep in mind, there's multiple levels here. But in terms of this, I'm talking about the main COP annual meetings that they have. And they've already decided next year is going to be uh, in uh, Azerbaijani in Eastern Europe along the Iranian on one side and Russia border on the other. And they have the next year after that already decided in Brazil. I'm not sure which city in Brazil. They've previously had UN Earth summits in Rio de Janeiro. Uh, and I believe one other city they've had a different kind of UN, but I'm not sure if they picked the city in Brazil. But they're already moving on to the next one. But I think it's a time to take a little celebration as more and more people are realizing that this COP summit was just an absolute failure. This is Unleashed with... As more and more people are realizing that this COP summit was just an absolute failure. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, we're back. Uh, so I wanted to play you that clip. That's what went viral on Twitter. That's what I think even prompted Fox News to put the other clip of me with a cigar. Anyway, I think it's important to celebrate the small victories, but... Obviously, one. this is a very small victory, but it's just the idea that they couldn't even keep their own rhetoric together at the UN and the meaningless agreement they had. Okay. I wanted to play you clip two. This is just incredible because John Kerry over the summer testified about his private jet, uh, and he was grilled by Republican legislators in the House of Representatives. And he said repeatedly, I don't own a private jet, very convincingly, until they called him out. Apparently, he doesn't own one but his wife does. Let's watch clip two, because this gives you an idea of the mendacity of John Kerry. So uh, I just don't agree with your facts, which began with the presentation of one of the most outrageously persistent lies that I hear, which is this private jet. We don't own a private jet. I don't own a private jet. I personally have never owned a private jet. And obviously, it's pretty stupid to talk about coming in a private jet from the State Department up here. Uh, just honestly, if that's where you want to go, go there. A few moments later. You uh, just testified under oath that you never owned a private jet. Mr. Chairman, I'd like to enter into the record uh, article here from February 15th of 2023. The John Kerry family private jet was sold shortly after accusations of climate hypocrisy. Uh, Mr. Secretary, do you stand by that testimony that you've never I, owned or I personally, your family? I your family. personally, yes, my wife owned a plane. What can you say? I don't own a private jet. We don't own a private jet. Translation is. We just sold our private jet when it became public and we got a lot of scrutiny. So we don't own one anymore. I don't own one. I've never owned one. Oh, but my wife owned one, uh, but it wasn't in my name. 
this is how John, John Kerry, this was like over the course of about an hour. He started out in the hearing by literally saying he didn't own it. We don't own it. I've never owned one. Very careful parsing. And then later he admits they just sold it. His wife has owned one and has always owned one, but not now. She doesn't own one. So just to give you an idea, he's got a $17 million budget with the State Department. He's an unelected bureaucrat. He does not face Senate confirmation. He's the U.S. climate envoy. He gets to jet around the world, uh, going to all these meetings that, to save the climate. When he was confronted in Iceland about his... Uh, his uh, flying a private jet to pick up an environmental award. His answer was a private commercial doesn't make sense for someone like me. What is someone like me? Someone who's saving the planet and doesn't have time to go through security and wait in lines and sit back and coach or even first class. First class isn't good enough for the John Kerry's of the world. Okay. This next clip, I want to play this because this just gives you an idea. There's some really good members of Congress who know how to grill people. This is the congressional hearing on climate science challenging a climate activist on her claims. Play clip three. Because climate change is in part what is driving the dramatic increase in wildfires on what, our landscape. What if you're wrong about climate change? What if it turns out that we don't see three degrees additional global temperatures by 2050? What if you're wrong about that? Um, Congressman, I'm not going to second, second guess scientists from all over the country and all over the globe. So how about the over a thousand scientists that disagree with that, that say, sure, there's climate change, but it isn't man-driven? Uh, Congressman, again, I'm not going to uh, second guess uh, client, climate science that is widely accepted. So we just heard that um, uh, we're going to see the end of the world by 2030 by the person sitting in the uh, uh, in the ranking member's chair in opening remarks. Uh, we had a vice president that said the end of the world was coming in 10 years. He said it in 2007. And then by 2017, he said, basically the end of the world is coming. Um, is it possible that it may not happen? That, that climate change may not be the end of the world as so many people, as some like yourself claim? Uh, Congressman, I believe it is incumbent upon all of us to fix a problem that we know exists in our, in our world and in our country. Um, it's our obligation to future generations to do that work. But what if you're wrong? Uh, Congressman, again, I'm not going to second guess uh, what is uh, known to be true. So it's dogmatic that you simply, it's faith-based that you simply believe it. Even though there's been a pause over about the last 10 years when you read some of the leading climate scientists who are saying there's been a pause for about the last 10 years. Congressman, I believe we're going to agree to disagree on this one. There you go. That's Congressman Tom Tiffany, GOP Congressman. Fantastic job deconstructing the nonsense. When you end up debating that, this is what they refer to. Well, this is what the scientists say. We can't challenge the science. I'm not going to be the one. That, there's, we, this is what the agreed upon, essentially what the agreed upon science is. Great job. We could, if we confront this narrative, and I mean, we have to challenge the narrative, not, oh, climate's a problem and we need solutions. We're going to plant trees, as the old Kevin McCarthy would do. We're going to plant trees and capture carbon and give out billions of dollars to our GOP donors so that we can, uh, you know, put in pipelines and capture CO2. We're going to solve climate change. Uh, enjoy your retirement, Kevin. And I'm sure Kevin McCarthy is going to enjoy his retirement lobbying, law firms, media contracts, CNN, MSNBC, he's going to be a gazillionaire. So he's going to have a great time 
cashing in on the, yeah, I guess it's called Potomac fever. You catch that and you end up with very wealthy. Anyway, this is the Mark Morano show on Unleashed on TNT radio. When we come back, we're going to be talking about financial issues with our special guest. We will be right back after these messages. Jeremy now on TNT Radio. Being South African, I'm, I know the situation and it's incredibly dire. Basically, our farmers, mostly white, have been under attack for years and years and years. And when I say attack, I mean that physically, don't I? Yes. Um, since the dawn of democracy in South Africa, since 1994, we had an average of uh, one farm attack every second day. Um, so it averages around uh, 175 to 190 farm attacks every year. And we had a farm murder on average every fifth day. Um, but over the last few months, both those numbers have picked up. Murders in other sectors of society are not accompanied by the same levels of brutality and torture as you will find in farm murders. Jeremy Nell on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. I was such a young age. Everything changed. My name is Chloe. When I was 13, my dad was diagnosed with cancer. When I found out, I just didn't know how to react. I felt like everything was just kind of closing in on me. It just became a routine. Dad's doing chemo. I'd come home from school, wait for mum to finish work, and we'd go straight to the hospital, spend a few hours there, just draw. It was hard to navigate going to school. Hundreds of kids, and I was the only one with a dying dad. He was diagnosed in March, and then he died in October. Towards the end, I heard about canteen. It kind of felt nice to know that they had other people like me. They understood what I was going through and we didn't even have to chat about cancer. In 2020, I became a youth ambassador so I can help others the way they helped me. I've done so many things since I was 13. I've graduated high school, university, gotten my license, made a move across the country. Life now is just a whole lot more fun. Please give a gift today to support more young people like me experiencing cancer. Today's News Talk Radio. I do a lot of streaming radio. I do a lot of free streaming. TNTradio.live. Welcome back to Unleashed with Mark Morano. All right, well, joining us now is Rebecca Walser of the Walser Wealth Management. She's the president of that. She's also a financial advisor, tax attorney, and author of the book, Wealth Unbroken, Growing Wealth Uninterrupted. Welcome to the program, Rebecca. Thanks for having me, Mark. Glad to be here. All right, well, let's start out with a simple question. Given the fiscal financial health of the United States, both in terms of the government financial health and the citizens' financial health, what would you grade each? What individual grades, if you would, would you give government financial health and what would you give us U.S. citizen financial health? So for the government, I'd definitely give them a D at this point. Um, and that's for a couple of reasons. Data I can point to it. Fitch obviously downgraded our bonds. So that was huge. But we also had Moody's turn outlook negative. And both of them stated that the state of budgetary ability in the United States Congress and the ability for the government to actually fund its operations or not fund its operations is the problem. And it's obviously, Mark, uh, been something that we've been following since 2008. We've had a shift to modern 
monetary theory in 2008. And now we are starting to really see the impact of that. And the Fitch downgrade and the Moody's negative outlook both speak to that. So that's definitely a D. Also, because we had to literally not, we had to pass the buck on the debt ceiling till past the election, which as a lawyer, I think is completely unconstitutional. But there's another problem with government. So that's a D. As far as consumers go, we're looking at a C for them. And the reason they are C is because you really have a bifurcated economy. You have people that are at the top, still doing very well, still supporting retail, luxury sales, and all those things. But if you look at the rest of the America and the rest of, of the population, we're seeing the highest credit card debt level ever in the history of America. We're seeing the delinquencies go up astronomically. And we're also seeing the high interest rate car notes go into major delinquencies and defaults. So we started to see leading indicators on the consumer side that we're going to have a lot of problems uh, coming in the very near future. And so that's also a C. And also the savings rate. We know that, you know, with the coronavirus stimulus, we had um, people building up the bank accounts. And now that has dwindled down. And we're really looking at liquidity issues coming forward into the next year. Okay, well, let me ask you, let's 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 refine the question of the bottom 70%. Let's take out the top, maybe 25, 30%. How is the bottom 70% of Americans doing? Would you still give them a C or are they in D, D minus territory at this point because they're struggling? Yeah, I would say that we would be closer to the D range on the bottom 70 if we didn't have any of the uh, the upper uh, pulling us yeah. up for a better grade. I think you're 100% right. It's because, you know, inflation, unfortunately, has really been skewed, uh, obfuscated, I would say, uh, you know, the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics and all of the things that are really following jobs and everything. You know, what they did is, and people don't realize, is usually CPI is a, is a two-year look back, and they really changed it to be a one-year look back. So they're looking at it versus two. 2022 as opposed to versus 2021. And so it looks like the, you know, it's coming down, but it's still actually an inflate, oh, yeah. an inflationary environment. We're still actually having higher prices than last year, even 2022. It's just that the rate of increase has slowed a lot. And if you compare it to 2022, it looks positive. But when you compare it to what's really happening, you really understand that we still have inflation. And that impacts the bottom 70% immensely because they're heavily reliant on high interest rate credit cards that go up every time interest rates have gone up since you know we started having the raises in 2022. So it, it really is a desperate time. A lot of people are having to have two jobs just to maintain bills, and that's a problem. All right, let's go back. Uh, I remember Bill Clinton's second term. I hate to call it a utopia, but it was probably the greatest. I, I could be completely wrong here, but this is as a layperson, my memory. His second term, say 97, 98, 99, I, I always say it's always good when government's distracted by a sex scandal in Washington because they generally, <laughs> and, you have grid, and you have gridlock because you had a Republican Congress, Democrat president. Mm -hmm. But yeah. it seems like I remember gas in the DC area, 75 cents a gallon. We had budget surpluses. We had spending under control. We had welfare reform. There were things we were still talking about, the peace dividend from the end of the Cold War. Obviously, uh, September 11th, 2011, blew all that up. 2001 blew all that up financially from a point of view then we had iraq iran all the military buildup it just massive deficit spending went through the roof which then later we had the 2008 obviously the banking crisis or whatever you want to call it what are those two items you know first of all do you agree with the assessment that the late 90s were some of the best periods of the last say 40 50 years in terms of fiscal health even among consumers and government and what was a bigger impact, the 9-11 with all the wars starting after or the just the banking collapse in 2008 in terms of yeah. ruin, ruining our financial health? 
Great question. So I totally agree with you. Bill Clinton was probably one of the most fiscally responsible presidents that we've had in the modern era. And certainly having a balanced budget, which really hasn't happened since, is, is like, I mean, that is something that we need to ascribe to, Mark. We shouldn't be able to debt finance, especially when our debt is beyond $30 trillion. Like yeah. th there's got to be a stopping point. I would say that um, definitely 2008 has a much bigger uh, impact for monetary policy. And I'll tell you why because even though we had um you know the the wars and we had a lot of debt financing of iraq and post 9 11 really when we had bush as a president i, I mean i am a more libertarian as a lawyer and i will just tell you that Bush was probably one of the worst presidents from a perspective of human protections and citizen protections, because after 9-11, we got the Patriot Act. We got yes. what we call national security letters. People don't even know that the government has the ability to send a request for your cell phone records and your bank records to your bank or your cell phone carrier. And they're not even allowed to tell you that they're providing those documents to the federal government. So I'm not a big George Bush fan from a, yeah. a perspective of freedom, but, um, you know, monetary policy really did not change until the global financial crisis of 2008. And that is what has really set us on this collision course for reality. Uh, we might have been able to get away with it a little bit longer, but what happened in 2008 with too big to fail was we have to bail these out. And I'll give you a perspective on that. We thought back then, wow, the government's going to come into these banks and buy, you know, basically buy these toxic assets. That was eight hundred billion dollars mark that wasn't even a trillion dollars fast forward to uh coronavirus in 2020 and we're at six trillion just with the the congress stimulus alone you know before yeah. the fed is coming in and printing 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 so what happened was we literally changed under the obama administration beginning in 2009 we really changed our philosophy to be one of modern monetary theory mmt which basically completely disconnects your currency to your hard asset values and it states that you're able to print as much money as you need to perpetually into perpetuity as long as you can collect enough taxes to service the debt and that is a theory that has never really worked out because if you look at like the roman empire for example that had massive wars all across the globe that were taxing their citizens uh, to the point of desperation it imploded upon itself and that is the united states of america in 2023 we have such a large debt level that it is just not able to be sustained. The, the Treasury Department came out on December 1st and said that they would have to raise $1.6 trillion just between November, December, and get into Q1. $1.6 trillion. So what we have now is deficit-level, uh, pandemic-level spending under normal circumstances, and this is not manageable. This cannot continue into perpetuity. So the United States has a reckoning, and it is coming. Wow. Okay. Let's go. I was working in the U.S. Senate 2008 when they were trying to do the bank bailout. This was in the waning months of George W. Bush's administration. I worked for Senator Inhofe. I actually had meetings with him begging him not to even consider the bailout. He ended up voting no on the bailout. But later I had found out that that whole bank bailout, they were going to get the bailout whether Congress voted yes or no anyway. It was Congress was more of a just a symbolic you know, gesture to, as a vote of confidence. What did they do with that bank bailout that, that that the financial industry got? And didn't that send all the wrong lessons? Uh, did, would that just mean basically you can do whatever you want and you'll be bailed out by the U.S. government? 
this is it. Uh, too big to fail basically creates what we call the moral hazard of banks. Yeah. And they haven't learned their lesson. And we're doing it again. We did it again with what we call the BTFP, the bank term funding program that was opened as a credit facility for the Federal Reserve to get direct cash to banks in March of this year. It's a one-year program. The analysis through JP Morgan basically says that they expect that to grow to $2 trillion. Now, I want to explain to you, if you look at the FDIC's balance sheet for 2023 and you look at the reserve assets that, that the FDIC has in reserve that ensures $9.9 trillion of deposits, just under $10 trillion is FDIC insured in this country. The federal, the FDIC reserves on their balance sheet is $125 billion, ensuring almost $10 trillion. So the BTFP, the bank term funding program, is a direct dollar for dollar. Basically, the Federal Reserve will buy back the bonds because there's been a shift since we went to modern monetary theory. A lot of these banks have insured their deposits, not through loans, not by saying, hey, let's let's take in risk, make loans, make a profit, pay, get a yield spread. And then, you know, that's how we, we operate as a bank. What they have started to do is buy bonds to basically cover their their liabilities of withdrawals and the problem. Problem is they bought those bonds prior to the 2022 rate increases, which means they have lost a substantial amount of market value when you compare the current market value of those bonds. And the Fed is ignoring all of those trillions of dollars of losses and saying, we will buy your bonds back at par. And the Fed doesn't have the capacity, you know, with the balance sheet of over $7 trillion, which is literally the highest in history, except for the time right after coronavirus, it's come down a little bit. You'll see that they don't have the capacity. And we were following really a sort of Paul Volcker 80s kind of uh, monetary policy when we were raising rates. But what you'll see is even though we've quantitative tightened the last six months and we've pulled off about $600 billion, the Federal Reserve injected money in the last couple of months back into the system that pretty much undid all those six months of QT. So we're really moving back towards uh, the Federal Reserve having accommodative policy at like a Ben Bernanke policy that we did have in the 2008 uh, global financial crisis that says we're going to cut rates and they're going to buy these things and stimulate that way. So they are really moving us right back to MMT because they understand that our country now will not survive without it. We are a stimulus-based economy, a consumption-based economy. And if the liquidity dries up at the banking system, it's it's uh it's all holds barred. It's it's a it's a it's a complete uh financial collapse, unfortunately. And they can't have that happen. So we're moving back to MMT and we're back to stimulating. Okay, first of all, what's the history of MMT? Where did it come from? Was it a few academics? Why was it so readily adopted? And where is it, if, assuming we stay on this path, you know, how long do we have till that collapse happens? Are we just delaying it five, 10 years? Is this inevitable? Or is there a way out potentially uh, given, I'm saying, was there a way out staying the somewhat the same course with the same type of thinking in charge? Or do we have to completely revamp our thinking and approach? All great questions. I'll try to take them on at a time. So MMT really was uh, a brainchild in the 30s of an economist, but really became more popular with, uh, you know, John Maynard Keynes and the Keynesian philosophy yeah. of, you know, what we believe that the government doesn't have to collect and does it and can be printing, 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 and that there will not be a problem as long as the collectionability of the tax is enough to service the debt. So it really became popular in modern era under uh, Keynes, Keynesian. And, and as far as um, where we are, the problem is the United, the United States has uh, really enjoyed the 
hegemonic status of the dollar as the world reserve. It yes. really goes back to World War One and the 1907, like 1917, 1918, because the pound was literally uh, basically what happened in World War One is people were buying. Uh, we became industrialized nation and people were buying from the United States and U.S. dollars. So a lot of global trade started just naturally occurring and U.S. dollars. So a lot of people attribute the the gold, the dollar standard to really the World War One. But the truth is, we didn't really get it until Bretton Woods, Connecticut, 1944, where we were officially then tied to the gold standard and became the global reserve currency for the world. Since then, if you look at the Forex percentage of dollar denominated, we still are by far 75% plus the majority. But what we've seen is a, a sheer diminution over time of other uh, currencies being held as reserves, euros, Japanese yen, a little bit of Chinese yuan, oh, that's very minor. And those are the kinds of things. But what has happened is the shift of the world. And that is the bigger threat right now, Mark, is you have the G7 GDP that you can look at. And then you can look at what we call the BRICS nations, the BRICS block, which was Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. And they have, as of January of 2024, admitted Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, UAE. Now, that is extremely alarming because the way that we solved coming off of the gold standard in 1971 under Richard Nixon was we created the petrodollar in 1974. Uh, Henry Kissinger went over to the king of Saudi Arabia yeah. and said, we will be your military as long as you control the OPEC block and make sure that all crude is sold in US dollars. And that gave us a quasi asset backing three years after we officially came off the gold standard and it made the dollar very stable globally. What is happening now with these BRICS nations is that we're seeing a much bigger block of the world's GDP moving away from the United States and the Western SWIFT system, which all came about when Russia got kicked out of SWIFT when they invaded Ukraine in March of 2022. So that's set off a series of events, Russia being yes. a part of the BRICS nations, to start to bypass the dollar and global trade. And that is probably the biggest threat that we have, Mark, on time frame. How fast is this going to happen? Because if Saudi Arabia and the UAE tell the world that they will start selling crude outside of the US dollar beginning this coming year, then we're looking at a potential uh, dollar collapse that could be realized. And that is something that we are not prepared for in any way. Well, yes, I've heard a lot about that. Now, in terms of the BRICS nations versus, say, the G7, are the BRICS nations, what are their financial health? What's their financial policy? What's their inflation rate? Do they buy into modern monetary theory? And are they actually learning from our mistakes? And, and what kind of threat do they hold down the road? Uh, you know, aside from the you know, the dollar, I'm just saying, what? How are those nations' fiscal health being governed right now? So it's a great question. It's a very great question. And what I would say is with the addition of Saudi Arabia, UAE and Iran, which are joining in January, and we have other countries that have formally applied to be a part of that block, what we are seeing is the GDP of the BRICS block is going to now exceed and it does already the GDP of the G7. And so wow. we are talking about a substantial amount of the global world trade being not potentially denominated in dollars as the BRICS uh, nations get 
their alternative reserve. And they've already said that they are going to back their currency by uh, hard metals, gold specifically, and uh, rare earth minerals, China being the largest miner of gold and rare earth in the world. China is definitely a modern monetary country. They they are all about government yeah. stimulus and support, and they obviously artificially uh, increase their GDP and their growth every year through their government funding because it is, you know, a communistically run country that, you know, even private business is not majority owned owned by private business. It's a consult, it's a con, you know, a, a kind of a consortium with the government. Uh, so it's a totally different business model. They definitely are a modern monetary theory and they have a big problem coming with their real estate. But if you look at Russia and you look at the other countries that are part of the bloc, you know, you've got a mix. And the truth is, it isn't even about does that country have fiscal uh, solvency or not. It's about the fact that we have this whole pulling away of the East and a lot of other countries right. with them that exceed the GDP of the G7. And that is a big problem. All right. We're talking with uh, Rebecca Welser, the president of Welser Wealth Management. And we're going to talk a little bit about central bank digital currency when we come back. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT Radio. Stay tuned. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. If by some unimaginable impossibility you're still trying to determine whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, ask yourself the following questions. Did you favor the Baphomet statue being erected at the Iowa State Capitol? Did you enjoy the school board swearing in on a stack of child pornography books? Do you find nothing objectionable about a homosexual sex tape being recorded in a Senate hearing room and posted online? And finally, did you just love the transgender nutcracker down a hallway hideously decorated by Dr. Jill Biden for Christmas at the White House? If the answer to one or more of these questions is yes, you might be a Democrat. In fact, you're definitely a Democrat. As for the rest of us, if you doubted that, in the words of Sarah Huckabee Sanders, this next election is the choice between normal and crazy, wonder no more. Last week said it all. From aginstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for TNT Radio. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Welcome back. Mark Moran here. We're talking with Rebecca Welzer, the president of Welzer Wealth Management. Okay, Rebecca, I had Carol Roth on, uh, The Economist, about you know, a couple months ago, and she was talking about, you'll own nothing. She had a book. The World Economic Forum has explicitly stated, you will own nothing. Life will never be better. You'll have no privacy. Everything you want will be delivered by drone. This might be an uncomfortable question for you, but everything you're describing here, these are the smartest, brightest people, went to the best schools, have advanced degrees, they're high government positions, they're intelligent, bright, the educated ruling class. How did they let us get into this mess? The question I'm asking is, is some of this intentional to create so much chaos that they'll, they'll expand their control over the general population and you'll have fewer and fewer decisions, more and more decisions made by fewer and fewer people? Is there a larger plan here or is it just general incompetence? Yeah, I wish it was general incompetence because then we could <laughs> potentially vote people out and get people of sound mind in and we could change policy and we could get back on track. 
But unfortunately, no, this is absolutely uh, a design thing. You know, the United States is very aware at the highest levels of government that our ability to continue the facade of fiat money is coming to an end. And the BRICS nations and pulling away from the West and the SWIFT system, the international global payment processing system that we've had, um, that is a tell that that is what's happening. So you've got players like the World Economic Forum that are saying you'll own nothing. And that is because everything is moving to uh, the SaaS model. SaaS is software as a subscription. So it used to be that you could buy your music with iTunes and own it forever and play it forever. I still have hundreds of songs on my iTunes library, but you'll notice that Apple came out now wants you to pay for a subscription and just rent your music monthly, like Spotify, like Pandora. So this is the new way. And as far as people are going to understand, let me explain what the world economic form of owning nothing and being happy is. That means when you go to buy a house, if you even are able to buy a house ever again going forward, you will not have all of the rights transferred to you that you currently have. For example, your house is going to come with an air conditioning unit that you you will not own. It will be leased through an air conditioning company or a utility company, just like you have your electrical wires, but you have to pay your utility service for the service. Your All of your lights will not be owned by you. You will be leasing them from the power company and they will be connected to the IoT, the Internet of Things, just like your toaster, your refrigerator, your washer dryer, your iron, your steamer, your television, your air conditioning unit. Everything will be rented not owned by and through the house ownership, and you will pay a subscription for those utilities for the rest of your life. And so the uh, ability to even potentially own a home is going to come into question. But as far as everything else, they've taken this renting software model and they're moving it now to the hard asset world. And we will be renting perpetually, which says to me, if I cannot gather and garner assets and create wealth through the accumulation of assets over my lifetime, if I'm going to be perpetually renting, this is clearly the best example of the surf model that we had in you know the feudal days it's a feudalistic system of people that are at the very top that own everything and they're just going to rent the use to you for the rest of your life it's going to to create a perpetual enslaved body of people that will do nothing but constantly have to work to just pay for their basic needs Wow. Okay. Final question. Central bank digital currency. Is that all part of this plan? I read where the UK Telegraph said the, the Bank of England actually said a central bank digital currency will ensure that you will only spend money on what the government deems sensible. Is this about control, not convenience, central bank digital currency? Central bank digital currency is 100% moving the West to the Asian or the communistic model of social credit scores. They are going to know all of your purchases in real time. And depending on your carbon footprint, which all three credit bureaus have agreed to track at an individual level, this has already been pre-arranged, pre-approved. Uh, basically, if your carbon footprint is not acceptable, the government absolutely will be able to say, no, you cannot buy this from Amazon and get it uh, delivered because your carbon footprint has already been maxed out for the month. So yes, central bank digital currency is nothing but for control. Remember, with Apple Pay and cash and all of these Venmo uh, things that we have now, okay. we don't need the central bank Federal Reserve to give us faster payments. That is obfuscation for what's really happening, which is total totalitarian control of society. You control the money, you control the world.
Well, thank you so much. I know you got to run. It's Rebecca Welzer, president of Welzer Wealth Management. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it, Rebecca. Fantastic thank you, analysis. Thank, thank you. you. Well, well, I've been, you know, this is what I wrote about in my book, The Great Reset. And she actually told me some things I did not know. Uh, I was unaware that the credit bureaus, the three leading credit bureaus, have already agreed to monitor carbon footprints, which is just another layer of this you could argue essential bank digital currency slash ESG. Uh, I have reported in my book, The Great Reset, and on my website, Climate Depot, extensively about how the United Nations, not only are they partnering up with Google because they own the science and they want to control search results, but United Nations has partnered up with MasterCard. And they had the fir world's first dichotomy, the, the credit card that monitors your carbon footprint. And according to the World Economic Forum, cuts off your ability to spend when you hit your carbon max. And that's frightening stuff. And Rebecca Welzer, the president of Welzer Management, also talked about this subscription society, which is a, you know the next step uh, in this. And I remember reading in the World Economic Forum about how you won't even own a toaster in your home or a blender. And they actually had an example on their website. It was the vision of the year 2030 of their, you know, under the Great Reset. And what it was, was your 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 a drone would come? Say you needed a blender, you were making a cake, right? And you're at your house. By the way, you don't own your house because during the day you would give it over to business meetings, and then you would go off to like a coffee shop, and then you would go home to sleep at night. And that way, you know, it's just all this common. Now, keep in mind, someone owns all this. You don't own anything. It someone will own it, and it's going to be the Klaus Schwabs and the John Kerrys and the. Bill Gates and the Richard Bransons and the Jeff Bezos and this whole ruling class, they're going to own it, some consortium of them or privately. But in this world economic world vision, just to support what Rebecca Welzer said, the financial expert, they actually laid out a scenario where you order up a blender because you don't own one in your kitchen. And then you put it on an app and then a blender gets delivered via drone, dropped off at your house. You would use the blender, make the cake, whatever, clean it up. You would then say you're finished, and then the drone would come, pick it up, and take it away, go on to the next home. What I found amazing about this from the World Economic Forum, Great Reset, Vision, Utopian Vision, was they actually believe that arrogance. I think it was F.A. Hayek who wrote The Economist about this. It's called The, uh, the, 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 the Conceit of the, 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 the Arrogance, The Conceit where you actually believe that you can mastermind every aspect of human endeavor figure it out, organize it, plan it, in some cases, many years and decades ahead, and then make it all happen in some master plan. And everything's going to be like this utopia that's going to be so much better. And, and it's frightening because if you look at what they're describing, there's no way that would work. In reality, you would call up the app. First of all, the app would probably have a bug and wouldn't work. Second of all, you'd have a wait list for that uh, blender to be delivered. Second of all, it'd probably be delivered, you know, somehow broken or cracked or unusable. There'd be no recourse. You'd have to skip making the cake that day. But they paint it all as though it's just this beautiful vision. Reminds me, I went to school at George Mason University, and one of my professors was Dr. Walter E. Williams. And I got to know him. I interviewed him several times for George Mason TV uh, and interviewed him after that as well. He actually cited me in some of his columns and his book, uh, he quoted my work. So, and I got to know him. And of course, he just suddenly died. He was in his 80s, but he suddenly died. Uh, I think it was in 2021, uh, the end of 2021. 
that's not retired, who's fully working. But Walter Williams constantly said, and it was a very good analogy, capitalism versus socialism. Socialism's always going to win the argument for one simple reason, because capitalism, capitalism is evaluated on the reality, warts and all. And I want to distinguish, obviously, well, let me finish what Walter Williams said. Capitalism is evaluated on the reality, warts and all, whereas socialism is evaluated on the utopian vision of what they hope to achieve. And every time you bring up examples of failed socialist systems, you, whether it's Eastern Bloc nations, and they'll always say, well, it wasn't done correctly. It kind of reminds me of COVID. Now you bring up, you know, the lockdowns and the public health. Well, it wasn't done correctly there. You can't, you can't count that. We didn't really lock down. That wasn't a lockdown. Yeah, you guys didn't experience a lockdown. But it's fascinating stuff because as Walter Williams said, you're not playing a fair game. You're arguing reality versus utopia. And guess what? Utopia wins every time. And it's the same argument, you know, but I was at COP28, the whole argument in the climate energy debate. You're dealing with the with fossil fuels, warts and all, versus the utopian vision of solar and wind, and it's going to be cheaper and efficient and clean. And uh, she really also, uh, this Rebecca Wells, really got me with the... Uh, some of her information about uh, the, the 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 energy, uh, how you're not going to own your own air conditioner. I'm not even aware of that. I have to look up the citation on that. Uh, but I do know that they're you know they're making yeah, heat pumps. You can't control your thermostat in your home. There's a whole movement to get rid of private car ownership, led by Boris Johnson's transportation secretary, who who flat out said. Two years ago, owning a car is outdated 20th century thinking. And we've had multiple people, multiple net zero reports, government funded major things talking about the end of private car ownership. The other, in other words, that freedom of movement is creating huge carbon footprint. We can't allow that. Uh, and I found it fascinating. She got into the modern monetary theory because, you know, and I'm no economist, but I actually got a C in Walter Williams' class in George Mason uh, when I was there. Uh, probably lucky to get the C. But what I what I understand modern monetary theory is basically we don't need no stinking tax increases. We can just print money. So it gives you an opportunity to spend, spend, spend. Politicians love it because you don't have to fund massive spending bills anymore. That's not like, well, we need to raise taxes to pay for this. Like, no, we don't need to raise taxes. We can just print more money and you'll pay the hidden tax of inflation in perpetuity for years ahead. But hey, we're not going to have to raise taxes to fund this because of modern monetary theory. And I like how Rebecca Welzer actually said also that they're not incompetent. They know what they're doing. This is about essentially controlling the system, keeping them in charge. Uh, and it's, you know, if you look at the big picture with the climate, with this modern monetary theory, it's the collapse of energy, transportation, food, free speech, and our banking system and our financial health. And pretty much when you do all those things, you've collapsed a society. But we may be years from the collapse. We're just being more and more managed. I didn't get a chance to ask her about the COVID. It was the largest transfer of wealth from uh, poor and middle class to the wealthy in the history of the U.S., uh, how the uh, wealthy class we created more billionaires and during the days of COVID. I think it was, um, I want to say it was Robert F. Kennedy Jr. who said as many months as we were COVID lockdown, we created that many new billionaires. So it was something like, I don't know if it was 30 billionaires for every month or maybe it was even more than that. Uh, but it's it's amazing because they're the ones in charge. They're the ones in full. And then you vote for these politicians and they're not really in charge. They're not really 
in, in charge of the whole situation. And I write about that in my book, The Great Reset, where elections aren't going to matter because it's just basically the financial system is in place. All right. Well, thank you for listening. This has been a whirlwind show. I love some of the clips. I loved all the information. And remember, human breath contributes to global warming. So try to breathe easy and maybe stop breathing. Next time you visit a cemetery, give a thumbs up because all the people in the cemetery, they did it right. They're doing their part to save the planet. They stopped breathing. This has been Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT Radio. Thank you for watching and see you tomorrow.